Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool autumn day here in the capital is Leslie Bryden. Leslie is the founder and managing director of Clark, a company specialising in PR, graphic design and social media with clients in the B2B, technology, public sector and food and drink sectors. Um, Leslie, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Leslie. Um, What we're all about, of course, is getting the authentic leaders of uh, British industry out there. So that is all exactly what we're about. And it's wonderful having you to do just that. Um, Normally, Mm -hmm. leadership is the uh, topic of the day. And we dive straight into that at this point on the show. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has dominated headlines throughout 2020, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle. Um, Absolutely. It has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, hasn't it? But for yourselves, to what extent has it changed things? Well, Scott, it's changed everything. Um, March the 16th, when uh, when we told all of our staff that we were going to be working from home, that just changed absolutely everything from the way that we worked, the way that we spoke to our clients, um, the way that we ran the business. And, uh, you know, we've been, we've been working hard ever since then. Uh, you know, obviously, as a, as a leader of a business, you have to look at it on a number of different levels. You're, you're looking at the business and how that's going, but we're a client business as well. So, uh, so clearly we were working very hard with our clients to allow them to adapt to the current situation. Um, the majority of the work that we do is public relations and social media. So we're looking after those outward messages uh, for our clients and that every strategy for every client needed to be pivoted very, very quickly. So to start off with, that is, uh, that's the task that we had in hand. But at the same time, we were trying to run our business, coping with um, a couple of clients that dropped off very, very early on um, and the impact that that had on our business. So we had furloughed some staff when the, when the furlough scheme came along and really working with quite a skeleton staff, working from home, um, trying to work ourselves through a situation that, uh, that we'd never faced before. But... I think that was one of the really good things is that nobody had ever faced this before. And one of the, the sort of big impacts that we saw very early on was the way that the business community came together to help each other to cope with it. Um, we got involved with uh, a collective, I, you could call it, uh, very early on, um, which has since been branded as Scottish Business Cares. And it really popped up uh, week one or week two of this crisis. And it was about uh, business leaders getting together and sharing information and really, uh, you know, bringing down those competitive barriers to help each other. The, the ethos was that 
no Scottish business should go down because mm-hmm. of a lack of information or a lack of knowledge. And all of these people suddenly came together to share what information they had, to share their experiences of how the furlough scheme was going to work, how grants were working, people's successes and failures with you know within all of those new systems that we had to cope with. And it was hugely, hugely helpful to us and really, really helped us through that, that sort of early period. I certainly agree with you. I think it's very clear um, just to what extent the business, um, well, business as a whole, industry as a whole, let's say, has come together and really Mm -hmm. shown some unity during this time. We're seeing competitors even recognising that they're in the same boat in the case of those pharmaceutical companies and the quest for a Mm -hmm. vaccine. They're sharing Mm -hmm. intellectual property, which is something that we've never seen before. That just epitomises to what extent we're seeing that collaboration. Um, With all of that collaboration and all of that communication that's been out there, Leslie, reflecting on your experience of the, uh, the last few months then, is there anything you can say that you have learned from going through this experience of crisis management? Um, I think, well, one thing, I don't know if it's necessarily a learning, but it's certainly an observation. I, I've, I've been in the communications industry for over 20 years, and whenever there is a crisis, shall we say, and usually that's a financial crisis, communications goes right to the bottom of the list. And we're we're normally one of the first to get the red pen um, because people are drawing in their belts and uh, and you know trying to conserve cash. What we found with this situation is comms went right to the top of the list, and companies seem to uh, have really embraced the fact that communication is really important to their health and strength as a business. So whether that's internal communications or external communications, it um, you know it continued, and that obviously helped us as a business because that is the that is the service that we provide. From a from a business and sort of leadership point of view, I think we learned a lot about ourselves as a business, our personality, our team, um, the way that we work. We had grappled in you know the last couple of years with uh, with how we how we apply flexible working it sounds bonkers now because clearly we're all working from home all of the time and we've managed with that we've coped with that we've we've run our business we've managed to win new business through that and um, and last year we were all sort of sit, sitting scratching our heads wondering how we could apply that to our business when when things do go, and, and I, I don't like that phrase, back to normal, because I don't think we're ever really going back to normal. But when things do settle and, you know, we start to be able to come out and work in our offices again, if we do, um, I think we'll have a really different, uh, different take on how we run our businesses. Um, I think it's very much more person-centred. A lot of businesses have really dug deep and looked at uh, their their teams, how they're coping, how their mental health is, and that's become really important to them. And that is certainly something that I think has moved us forward in the last uh, in the last six months, and that's definitely a good thing. And just how easy do you find the remote working side of things and leading from a distance personally? I find it okay. I, I'm, 
I'm quite happy working from home, but uh, the, the the leadership side of things is is slightly different from that. I'm quite happy sitting in my office working at home, but that connection with the team is really important, and it's something that you know that we have to put time into. And you can't just assume that because maybe you see staff every morning. We've had a we've had a meeting every morning, and we're still having it. Um, but you can't just I assume because you see happy smiling faces from 9 until 9.30 at that meeting in the morning that everything's fine. So I think keeping really, really close to um, to the members of the team for me has been really important. And when the restrictions started to lift, the, the one thing that we started to do was start trying to see the team face to face. I live... 25, 30 miles away from Edinburgh, which is where our main office is. But we we did do a little bit of travel on a one to one basis and try to have uh, try to have one to ones with the team. And um, and I think really just to keep you know keep that going, keep that communication going, mm-hmm. and uh, you know keep making sure that uh, that everybody's okay. The one key area that I think is still a big challenge, and it's going to be a challenge for a lot of businesses is onboarding new members of staff, um, particularly mm. younger members of staff who are just coming into the industry. They generally learn in a business from being in a room with lots of people and asking questions and observing how things are done. And when you have, like we do, um, a, a graduate working with you, uh, I think for them, this is a really, really challenging time because they're not getting the benefit of, uh, of of watching their peers, so I think we're going to have to be we as a as a collective as leaders are going to have to be really creative about how we um, about how we train those staff and how we sort of bring them into the fold of the business. Mm, it's going to take a lot of creativity to sort of get around that problem and um, another thing that of course businesses are going to be considering quite hard over the course of the next few months is what is to become of their working practices in the long term whether they'll be keeping hold of their office spaces whether they or not they'll be jettisoning that and just because of the likelihood of prolonged covid anxiety even when there is hopefully a working vaccine in place and there could be some time Mm -hmm. for everything to recover including people's confidence to go back into workplaces Mm -hmm. can you see the office environment as we knew it ever returning in vogue or do you think it's going to be now a little bit of a hybrid system or more of a fully fledged um, move toward remote working? I think probably a hybrid system and for for our business and there's um, there's a lot of younger people in our business uh, there's a lot of people who live on their own they've not enjoyed working from home and uh, for them, it's really important to um, to get back into that office environment, and the you know the social aspects that come from work are really important to them. So I think we will go into more of a hybrid situation, and I think many others will do the same. There will certainly be more working from home. We've shown that that works. The technology is there for for that to happen, but. Um, but certainly that going back into the office 95, I think, is gone. 
Certainly going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, certainly throughout the whole of the week, I think you're absolutely right. That is something that is probably going to go and never, ever come back now, just because we found yeah. that the work from home and um, maybe also having one or two days in the office is ideal for the work-life balance because you get the best of both worlds. You obviously get the time to the extra time to spend at home. You can commute, yeah. obviously, into the office when suits and also then have that social human interaction that is, again, very yeah. important for mental health and well-being and that we've taken for granted before absolutely um absolutely just looking at the future now in just a little bit more of a broader sense leslie before we finish because i am conscious that our time on the program is beginning to draw to its close okay um we know that over the um the next few months at least we're going to have to persist with what's being called the new normal keep going with restrictions because we've got to get through the winter period first we know that but as we then emerge into the spring and hopefully things begin to drop off and there may or may not be a working vaccine um what is it that you're sort of hoping to achieve in future over the course of the next year as a whole? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time in a year? Uh, growth would be good. Um, we uh, we had planned this year, this is going to be a really pivotal year for our business. And, uh, you know, we had quite a steep growth path uh, planned. That has been, I, it's not disappeared completely, but it has been tempered. So we will be looking to get back to growth. There is still business out there. There is, um, you know, there's, there's still work going on. So we will certainly be looking get, to get back to that. And we're already looking at it now. And, uh, you know, starting long lead outreach for the next financial year. One of the things that I think is going to be really key to that is, you know, we talked about barriers coming down. One of the one of the big barriers that's come down for our business is uh, is re- regionality, if you like. Uh, we're based in Scotland. I'm sitting here in the Scottish borders. I've been dealing with all of our clients uh, online, and that means that we're now no longer limited to a client base that is in and around the central belt of Scotland. Mm. Uh, we're already speaking to potential clients in the London area. And um, some of them have uh, have realised that the um, that the pool of suppliers that they have is no longer just in that sort of southeast area of the of the UK. So that is um, that that has huge potential for us if we can deliver our services to a much broader audience. So that's certainly going to be a big part of uh, of our growth strategy over the next year or so. Mm. out of every crisis there comes opportunities doesn't there and it Mm -hmm. seems as though you're really gearing yourselves up to take advantage of the opportunities that are going to be there Leslie and I do certainly wish you all of the luck in the world in making all of that possible and you know just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the program this morning I think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show at some point in the next year just to see how some of those plans are beginning to bear fruit Absolutely, Scott. You hold me to those plans. And yeah, that's no problem. Thank you very much for having me. It's what we're all about. Positivity is needed at the moment and it is indeed (laughs) infectious. So let's all just get a good dose of it and just keep our fingers crossed that we're going to be out of this rut sooner rather than later. Um, Leslie, I have to say, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything and still going on until we do get to speak again. Thank you. You too, Scott. 
I'd also like to reiterate that message to every one of our listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Leslie Bryden, founder and managing director of Clark, onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during an illustrious professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned, of course, for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. To this day, that makes Sir Jeff the only man to have ever scored a hat-trick within a World Cup final. Um, Sir Jeff will be coming on to the show to look back at some of the highlights of his career. He will also be talking about the importance of robust leadership and some of the key influences throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this most trying time. All of that will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you 
Yes, I think people. Um, I, I've off, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, ten yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships, but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you 
what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years how he's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. 
And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul de sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul de sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across, the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the, uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. 
And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house, somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are, uh, completely two-footed than I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He... he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I saw a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the V Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season 
around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games, and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, up and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see myself. I was, I was a very disciplined, 
a person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time for the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I, was, I wasn't was at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, yeah, so I think it's... I think the, 
that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is. I don't know being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when. Um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff or other guests of any other person therein associated.